Okay, there we go. Well, hello. You guys doing okay? Well done for coming out on a Saturday morning and for traveling a long way to be here. It's so good to be together and uh, just really uh, humbled but also excited to share some time together. And apologies in advance, we've, we're getting a plane at like five o'clock today, so we won't be here for this evening, but we will pray on the plane. We will join our prayers with yours just for all that God's doing here. And uh, it, just, it really is a delight to be here and just see lots of kind of familiar faces and friends from kind of recent and kind of further, further past. And uh, just to introduce me real quickly, here is my family. Now, I mainly put a picture of the dog on there for Julian Mott's benefit because he still can't believe that I own a dog. And, uh, but anyway, this is, this is my family. I'm married to Carol. We've been married for 22 years. It was a bit slow, but never mind. We've been married for 22 years this September, and uh, I have two children, uh, Lauren and Sam. And uh, Sam left home on Sunday, just gone. I spent most of the week crying my eyes out. Any parents here have been through that experience? Your first child moving out, oh my gosh. So uh, I've been weeping for most of the week, uh, but they're, they're great kids. And uh, we, we got married in Sidcup, where Dave and Liz are, 22 years ago, and I'll never forget it because we got married on the day that Princess Diana got married. Well, got buried, sorry, not married, buried. I'm not actually that old. Um, she got buried on the day that we got married, and so I was the, one of the first people to turn up to the building in Sidcup, and so I'm all suited and booted and just, you know, ready for my big day. I'm excited. And so I walk into the church building, and this elderly chap called Alex meets me at the door, and his face is like thunder. And he, he walks up to me, he's like, Phil, it's a sad day today. <laughs> So it's not for me, Alex, I'm getting married. And uh, Carol, she, she became a Christian in, in Sidcup in southeast London and she uh, came from a family and no one in her family had ever believed in Jesus as far as she was aware. And so she was, she, you know, she was one day in a field with a gang having just vandalised some toilets in southeast London and uh, she kind of remembers looking around at the scene and thinking, there has to be more to life than this. And she found a kind of clearing in the woods and she just cried out to God. And she said, God, if you are really there, I have to know you. And she said, in a moment, she sobered up and the presence of God filled that wood so powerfully that she said she was actually afraid, but she knew that God was real. And uh, she gave her life to follow Christ. And she uh, started to come along to the church in Sikup soon afterwards, again, zero kind of experience of what church is or how you do things and I think on one of her first Sundays she responded to a call for prayer and so kind of came down the front didn't know what to do so she sat cross-legged on the floor um, and people were praying around her and someone was praying for Dave and the spirit of God so came upon Dave that he fell on the floor on top of Carol so she is sitting there 16 year old Carol newly saved like What's going on? Is this normal? I'm not sure. And, uh, and she said she remembers people speaking in a funny language and then she got prayed for and was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues for two hours and just kind of left that room, just completely changed. And so her, her mother greeted her at the door that Sunday <laughs> and said, uh, so how, how was church, dear? <laughs> and uh, she said, yeah, she said it was really good. She said, they spoke in a funny language and the pastor fell on top of me. <laughs> And all her mum said was, oh, that's nice, dear. Don't tell your dad. (laughs) 
That's all she said. And so that was a kind of baptism into kind of Christian life. The interesting thing is she said she, she, she would have been more surprised if something like that hadn't happened in church. Because she reasoned that if Jesus is alive and I met him in the way that I did in that woods, then surely he's going to do stuff. Surely he's going to change lives and we're going to see the effects of the spirit working in his people. And so it's so interesting. She wasn't phased by any of it at all. She's like, oh, this is normal. Jesus moves. Jesus is alive. So anyway, that is a little bit about our family and uh, everybody sends their greetings. And um, we've got the next two sessions together this morning just to explore some thoughts together. And uh, I've really titled this message, um, What Time Is It? Understanding Season Shifts. And so we're going to be uh, ping-ponging around some different scriptures together and looking at some themes together. Because I don't know about you, but my sense is the days in which we're living in are incredibly remarkable. There is such a rate of change happening around us in the nation and in the nations that so often what we see in the natural is a sign of what's happening in the spiritual And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that the rate of change, whether it's in kind of technology and science and kind of culture, or even just some of the pressures that we're facing across the world right now, whether it's things like thorny issues like Brexit or national issues like ISIS and extremism and terrorism and nations that are in crisis and the threat of kind of wars and nuclear weapons and North Korea and all this stuff is going on in our planet right now and there's just this sense of kind of tumult and change and momentum but also the kingdom is advancing and I'll suggest to you that you've got to be actively discouraged as a Christian in the days that we're living in because God is doing some truly remarkable things And of course, what he's doing in the nations is a sign of what he wants to do in Scotland. It's a sign of what he wants to do here. Let me just read some things that you may not read on the BBC website. Um, According to the Pew Research Centre, from the year 1960 to the year 2000, the global number of Christians grew three times the world population rate. In 1900, one in every 28 people would profess that they followed Christ. Now it's one in four people on the planet profess to follow Jesus. Now I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but are they real Christians? I'm not talking about that. Just for a moment, just step back and think, wow, that's amazing. That's happened in my lifetime. There's been a shift in this last century so that now one in four people on our planet say that they believe in Jesus More people have converted from Islam to Christianity in the last century than in all the other centuries put together on the face of the planet. There there is a move of God happening right now in Iran and Iraq, the likes of which we've never seen before on the planet. You know, a a friend of mine was recently in a a refugee camp in Kurdish Iraq, and uh, he was there with a team to go and share uh, the gospel. And he said the trouble was, well, it wasn't the trouble, but he said Jesus had actually arrived before they had. And what they discovered as they started to talk to people in this refugee camp is that over 200 of them had seen a man dressed in white walking through the campsite and saying, come and follow me. And so 200 people had already given their lives to Christ because they'd met the risen Jesus walking through the campsite. You know, they talked to one man who had been captured by ISIS and they tried to get him to recant his new Christian faith and, uh, and he wouldn't do so. Just a new, new believer. And so they began to threaten him and said, right, we're going we're to set you alight. So they poured a, a litre of gasoline on his body and tried to set him alight. 
but the match wouldn't light and it wouldn't set the gasoline alight. And so his captors were so kind of baffled by this, they just poured more gasoline on this guy. They, they lit the match, they tried to catch the gasoline, and again, it wouldn't light. Three times they tried to set this guy on fire, and none of those times would it catch a light. And in the end, they let him go. And there's just story after story of how Jesus is moving in the most unlikely places on our planet. You know, in South Korea, since the year 1945, in 1945, 2% of South Korea would say they're Christian. Now that's 30% of the population in South Korea. And you can get happy at any moment about any of these things. (laughs) Feel free to let your happiness reach your faces. You know, over 100 million people in China now say they're following Christ. Isn't that amazing? Do you know the new dominant superpower in this coming age is going to be China? You see the wisdom of God in what he's been doing in China in the last decades. <laughs> According to the Wycliffe Bible Society, by the year 2042, there will be a Bible in every person's heart language. By the year 2042, a Bible in every heart language on our planet. Um, the Jesus movie has been translated into over 1,000 languages, resulting in over 200 million decisions for Christ. This has happened in your lifetime. This is happening now on the planet, on planet Earth right now. 30,000 people come to Christ every day in China alone. (laughs) God is doing something in an accelerated way across the nations. um, And it's a remarkable moment. It's a remarkable moment for us to be living in. You know, two of our young people were just having a spa day. And they're sitting in the spa and they're just talking about the Lord. They're just talking about Jesus together. And this kind of lady from the other side of the kind of steam room just pipes up and she says, do you know what? I was about to give up my Christian faith, but hearing you talk about Jesus has renewed my desire to seek him. I mean, God is just showing up in the most unlikely of places. Uh, We had a a man called Farhad who uh, was new to the area. He's an Iranian man, moderate Muslim. And one morning he just Googled what was the nearest mosque or the nearest church building. And he decided that he would go to the closest one to his house. And our building just happened to be closer to his home. And so he he turned up on a Sunday morning and he just stood at the back of the room and just just wept, just wept, just wept, just wept. And every week he would come back and he would always stand at the back. And we would say to Fahad, why do you always stand at the back? Come forward, come forward. He's like, he said, "The, the, the weight in the room is so strong, I don't know how people can stand to be at the front. And this is a guy who's not even a believer yet, but he is coming into an environment where God is moving. We're living in remarkable days. And of course, in every generation, we need to ask the question, what is God doing and how can I do that? (laughs) What is God doing in my generation and how can I do that? Jesus, of course, sets that tempo and he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus' mandate, his model The way that he works was, Father, what are you about and how can I do what you're doing? Here's the question from the start, is that what you're doing? Are you asking the question, Father, what are you about in my generation? How can I get on board with what you're doing in the earth? It says this is the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12. It says, from the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. And all these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. I love that verse. You know, in the context of that verse is that 
at the time, Israel was in a season of massive transition. There was a transition from the house of Saul to the house of David. And what the chronicler writes is, in that moment, the sons of Issachar had insight into how to build according to what God was doing in that season. Do you understand that the overcoat you wore in the winter is no longer appropriate to wear in the summer? And I think so often as Christians, we can still be responding to what God was doing yesterday rather than saying, Father, what are you doing today? And how can I build? How can I understand the signs of the times in which I live? Jesus says this as well to the Pharisees, the spiritual guides of his day in Luke 12. He says, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? The Greek word used there for time is the word kairos. There's two words for time in scripture. Chronos, which means the linear passing of time, and kairos, which means the divine moment of opportunity. That's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, how is it that you can tell the weather, but you can't tell your divine moment of opportunity? I'm standing right in front of you. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm here. How is it that you can't see me? You're missing the moment. You're missing your season. Again, he says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. To what shall I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. You sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys are like people who show up to the wedding and you play the funeral song. You're like the guys who show up to the funeral and you play the wedding song. In other words, you're singing the wrong song for the season that you're in. My question to you is, are you singing the right song for the season that you're now in? Are you asking the question, Father, what are you doing in the nation? What are you building? And how can I do what you're doing? And so I want to highlight just three season transitions that I believe God is doing across the earth right now that I think for us as churches that are working together in Scotland are part of God's key to how we begin to see a nation transform. Because if he's doing it, then it's a good idea for us to get on board. So here's the first transition. And we're going to cover two before a coffee break and then one after a coffee break. So here's the first transition. Are you guys okay? Okay, just nudge someone and say, you need to hear this. Okay. So here's the first transition. It's a transition of identity, of God moving us from servitude to sonship. Servitude to sonship. This is actually a really crucial shift because if we're going to reform a nation, that needs to happen from a position of understanding that first, we have been reformed. Because here's the way transformation happens. Free people, free people. (laughs) Hurting people, hurt people. Free people, free people. In other words, freedom is an inside job. You will always export around you the reality that you are most aware of within you. That's why families look a lot like their parents. 
It's why organisations look a lot like their bosses. It's why environments look a lot like those who lead in those environments because you always bring out of yourself the treasure that you find within. And if we're going to see a nation transformed, then it's not going to come from slaves or tyrants. It's going to come from sons and daughters. It's going to come from those who know, I've been raised with Christ and my identity has been transformed in him. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, notice there that sonship and serving are both part of the kingdom. Jesus says, the son of man came to serve. And this, of course, is our leadership model. Our leadership model is really a competition as to who can get the lowest. (laughs) That's how it works in the kingdom. In the kingdom, it works by washing each other's feet, by laying your life down for one another, by putting other people's needs before your own, by getting low so that you can empower other people. That's the leadership model in the kingdom of God. It's serving like Jesus. It's leading like Jesus. That's the model. But I would suggest to you that when you separate your serving from sonship, you can easily create servitude. I'll try that over here. When you, when you divorce your serving from sonship, it's easy to create servitude. And servitude is the attitude that I have to perform for something that God has already given me for free. <laughs> I'll suggest to you that that way of thinking will never change a nation. If you are a slave to performance, you will never change a nation. You've actually got to know I've been made free by gift of God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You got an identity transplant for free. That's a freebie. That was on the Lord. You had nothing to do with it. It was all because of him. He did it. It was all by grace. And yet so often, my observation is in my own life and the lives of others is that we try and perform for stuff that God has already given us. I mean, even right at the start of the story where it all began to go wrong for Adam and Eve, You get this fascinating insight as Satan comes to Eve and says, listen, if you you would just eat this fruit, you will become like God. Like That was the the carrot on the end of the stick. Eat this fruit, you'll become like God. And Eve thinks, that's a great idea. If I do this, I'll get this. Here's the tragedy. Adam and Eve were already like God. (laughs) <laughs> you read it in Genesis 1.28. In his image, he made them. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> Mankind was made in the image of God already. They were already like God. Eve was trying to get something that God had already given her. And how many of us can live subconsciously in that position where we're trying to gain something that God has said, oh, I gave that to you. You know, when I called you into the kingdom, you got it all. <laughs> Freedom, forgiveness, new identity, completely transformed, completely washed clean, brand new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has already started. So stop trying to work for stuff that I've already given you. It's actually, it was all about the cross. It was all about the resurrection. It was all about the work of Christ. And you have received it as a free gift. And it's sons and daughters who are gonna change a nation. Serving from new identity, not for a new identity. 
I love the way John puts it in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's not what we're waiting for. It's not what we're trying to become. It's not what I'm working hard to achieve. No, no, that is what we are. I'm a child of the living God. That will always be true. And it's all by grace. And that's how nations get transformed. I'll suggest to you that we will not serve a nation well if we don't sort out our own orphan-hearted issues. Aren't you glad in the story of the prodigal son that the younger brother met the father first and not the elder brother? (laughs) I wonder how different that story would have read if the younger brother, still smelling of pigs, still in just the stench of his own disgrace and shame, came home to the family home and met the elder brother at the church door. (laughs) That would have been a different story. You know, if he'd met the guy who, even though he had access to everything the father had, still just had this FOMO, this fear of missing out, this fear of being overlooked, this insecurity, this pain of, I'm just, you know, I'm not getting what I deserve, this entitlement. Yeah, I wonder so often whether people met the elder brother in our churches first rather than the father. Never going to change a nation if you don't deal with me, with my heart, with the stuff that's in here. And serving from sonship transforms many areas of our life, but let me just mention two. Firstly, it reforms our self-talk. The way you talk about yourself, the way you think about yourself, Proverbs says this, Proverbs 18.21, that the power of life and death is in the tongue. What an amazing statement. I mean, James 3 puts it like this. He says, you know, the, the tongue is the most powerful instrument in the body. It has the power to set your whole life on fire. Therefore, tame your tongue. <laughs> tame your tongue. And when you begin to understand, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm cleansed by him and I stand in righteousness because of Jesus. One thing it should transform is the way that you think and talk about yourself. Because you cannot demean yourself without it becoming a worship issue. Because you're created in the image of God. You're his workmanship. You are his treasured possession. He delights over you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb. And so when you denigrate yourself, really you're pointing the finger back at the creator. You know, just imagine if you went to the best art gallery in the world. I mean, if you went to, I don't know, like the Louvre. And you go and stand in front of a Monet. And you're, just, you're, just, you're standing there looking at this just breathtaking palette of colours and just artistry and just like, wow. Now, you, you, you stand in front of that picture. And if you start looking at that thing and saying, you know, actually, it's a bit sucky. It's just a bit weak and frail and fragile. I don't really, nah, don't really like it. It's not really up to much. He could have done better. What happens in that moment is really you're reflecting something about the artist that painted the painting. Well, here's the truth. You are God's painting. <laughs> you are his workmanship. You are his treasured possession. And so what happens when you point at yourself and say, oh, actually, I'm a bit sucky. I'm not really up to much. I'm quite a failure, really, and never going to amount to much. I've got this, I've got that, I've got the other thing going on. Suddenly, that becomes a worship issue because you cannot look at this and say, I suck, I hate myself, without also pointing the finger back at God. 
But here's the, here's the truth. You have been fashioned in his image, in his likeness. <laughs> I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm chapter 8. He, he gives these breathtaking accounts. He says, God, you've crowned man with glory and honor. Is that the way you think about yourself? I've been crowned with glory and honor. That's how the psalmist thinks about it. I've been crowned. What is man that you are mindful of him? He's full of wonder. He's full of humility. But he recognizes, I've been crowned with glory and honor. And then what's his last statement in Psalm chapter 8? Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you understand who you are and who God has made you, you cannot help but worship the one who fashioned you in his image. Ultimately, it always points back to Jesus. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? You're God's workmanship. That reflects well on your creator. <laughs> and so this stuff should reform the way that we think and talk about ourselves. I mean, Balaam, this, this crazy story in the Old Testament, you know, he's the guy whose donkey prophesied to him. It's a brilliant story. And uh, you know, he has this moment where he's sent to curse the people of God. And he looks out the people of God and he cannot get a curse out of his mouth. Why? He says, how can I curse what God has called blessed. What does Ephesians 1 say? You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. How can you curse what God has called blessed? It's a worship issue. And I suggest to you that we need to banish the gospel of false humility in the church. There is a right kind of humility, but the right kind of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Just say that again. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You take on the attitude of a servant, but you understand I've been raised as a son. It changes everything. Another thing that this transforms for us is our is our courage. Again, I love the way Paul puts it to Timothy. He says, Timothy, listen, stop being so scared. You did not receive a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of, a spirit of love, a spirit of power, of self-control. And when you begin to understand that we serve from sonship, we serve from identity, we serve from this position of, I'm actually my father's favorite. I actually live under divine favor. I'm actually a partaker of the divine nature. Actually, I'm a chip off the old block. You know, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in me. This is who I am. I'm, I'm raised with him. I'm crowned. I'm, I have a righteous robe on my back. I have shoes of the gospel of peace on my feet. I have the belt of righteousness. Oh, you know, that's who I am. And one thing this does is it changes your courage levels. I would suggest to you that sons and daughters are very courageous. I, I loved that moment when my kids were younger and, you know, they would... When they were very young, you'd, you'd kind of teach them to jump off the stage, you know, or the steps, and you'd catch them. You know, when they were very young, it would kind of feel like a big deal at first, and they were like, yeah. and you'd catch them you're like, off the first step. And then, of course, gradually, as your kids get older, they're just so confident that you're going to catch them, that they'll just like, hey, catch me, got you. You know, and thankfully, I never dropped them, but there was that childlike confidence that gave courage to leap. <laughs> Why? Because it was rooted in who I was as a father. You're going to catch me. 
you are going to catch me and I trust you to catch me. And therefore, I don't need to be afraid. I've just taken the leap, taken the jump, taken a flyer, taken a risk. And when we understand our identity has been transformed, it actually gives us courage. So my question to you is, if you had no fear left in your life, what would you do with your life? If you had no fear left in your life, what would you actually do with your life? You know, what acts of courage would you take? What businesses would you start? What initiatives would you start to push into? Which people would you begin to talk to? What stuff would you start to do in your life? Actually, if you understood, I've not been given a spirit of fear. I'm a son, and therefore my father's got me. My father's going to catch me. Childlike trust produces courage. One person put it like this. If you knew who you are and whose you are, then fear would become an irrational concept. I love that. Fear would become an irrational concept. And of course, courage isn't an emotion. You ever thought about that? Courage isn't an emotion. I've often thought, I'm going to wait until I feel courageous, and then I'm going to take a step of courage. Well, you're going to wait a long time, because courage is not an emotion, it's a decision. (laughs) You may still feel afraid, you may still feel, how's this going to work out? But courage is a decision that there's something more important than my fear. So what would you do if you had no fear left? I travelled once with a a lady to New Zealand and a a team and uh, I I was amazed because as we were kind of waiting in the airport lounge, she said, you know, I just just feel like God wants me to dance on the aeroplane. I'm like, really? (laughs) She said, yeah, I just... I feel like God just wants me to release joy on the airplane. I want to dance on the airplane. I was like, all right. <laughs> and her, her husband was traveling with us. And he was like, are you sure? Are you really sure about this? And you, you know, he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't, wasn't totally on the same page. And so anyway, we, we, we get on this flight to New Zealand. So it's a long flight. So it's not like, you know, 45 minutes and you can wave goodbye. And we're with the same people for like a long time on this plane. And so kind of halfway through the flight, um, she kind of puts in her iPod and she can just see her getting in the zone. <laughs> I am tensing up in my seat. And, uh, and, and she gets up from her seat and she just starts to twirl down the aisle and starts to kind of just kind of dance. And her husband was getting lower and lower in his seat <laughs> the longer she went on. And, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I, was, I felt embarrassed but also hugely provoked. <laughs> hugely provoked because I thought, would I do that if the Lord asked me to dance on an aeroplane? It might seem like the craziest thing. You know, walking around the walls of Jericho and blowing trumpets probably felt like foolishness. And uh, we arrived in New Zealand and at the end of the trip, we, uh, we were going to watch a cricket match. And uh, again, this, this same lady on our team who'd taken this act of courage on this aeroplane, she's like, I just, I feel like, you know, we need to just ask God for some words for the, the New Zealand cricket team. We happened to find a parking space right outside where they were practicing before the game. And so uh, we, we went up to the, the kind of squad and we're like, is there anything that we can pray for for your team? 
And uh, they said, our, our captain, Ross Taylor, is injured at the moment, so you could pray for him. And uh, so we're like, great. So we, he, wasn't, he wasn't there at the time, so we ba- went back in the car. We just prayed together just for you know, healing for his ankle. And then there was a newspaper article came out two days later. Ross Taylor makes a remarkable recovery from his ankle injury. And w- so what's happening there? What's happening there is one woman is saying yes to God. She's saying yes to the Father. She's doing something that was costly, that was embarrassing, that was out of the box, but she was saying, Father, I'm trusting you to catch me. What happens? Suddenly the kingdom begins to advance. You see, God actually doesn't need big churches to change a nation. He just needs one man, one woman who says yes. That's all he needs. You know, I love the story of William Booth when he was called to go and see Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria wanted to know the secret of William Booth's success and how he'd managed to transform so many lives, particularly amongst the poor in London. And uh, he was two hours late for his appointment at Buckingham Palace because he refused to ride in the carriage that she'd sent him. And he said, if, it's not, if, if the poor don't ride in carriages, neither will I. So he walked to Buckingham Palace. And uh, he, he got there to see the Queen and he got a piece of chalk out of his pocket. He drew a circle on the floor and he stepped into the circle And he said, the secret to my success, dear queen, is that everything inside this circle belongs fully to God. He doesn't need a big crowd. He just needs one man, one woman, who's fully in the circle. How does that happen? Know who your father is and know who you are. And then fear will become an irrational concept. All right, next. Let's do the next transition. You guys doing okay? All right, cool. We're coming in for a drink relatively soon. Here's the the second transition. It's a dependence transition. Moving from human effort to God dependence. I think the reason that we're here today is that we understand human effort alone will not change a nation. The best programs, the best preachers, the best PowerPoints, the best coffee in the world alone will not change a nation. We need God. <laughs> we need him to actually step on center stage and do what he only can do. And one of the transitions in this season is a people beginning to come back to the centrality of prayer, of presence, of worship, of waiting, of looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, you alone can save a nation and we'll do our best but our best actually without you is not enough. We need you. We need you. There's a few strands to this. The first is just to understand that unseen realities are always transformed by our unseen priorities. So what you prioritize in secret is what becomes currency in the kingdom of God. In the British kingdom it's pounds and pence, but in the kingdom of heaven it's what you do in secret. That's how you accrue your heavenly bank account as it were. Jesus says, listen, when you pray, do it in secret. When you give, do it in secret. When you fast, do it in secret. And the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's Jesus saying? Your unseen priorities affect unseen realities. What you prioritize in the secret place is what really begins to bring change. Uh, There's that fascinating story in Acts, Acts 19, where the, seven, the sons of Sceva, this kind of pharisaical group, are trying to cast demons out in the name of Jesus. Just wave at me if you're familiar with that story. About two of us, and no, I'm joking. 
And uh, they've seen Jesus, they've seen the disciples having success at getting people free from oppression and they've seen them using the name of Jesus. And so they think, this is brilliant. We've got a method to get people free. And so they find this demonized guy and they're like, in the name of Jesus, in whom Paul preaches, come out. And what happens is that they leave the house without their clothes, naked and bleeding, because the guy beats them up. Now, what does the demonized man say to them? Jesus I recognize, Paul I recognize, but who the heck are you? Isn't it interesting that you can use the same methods and even use the right name and yet it won't bring freedom because even the demonic powers know the difference between hired servants and sons who actually are walking with the Lord. Your unseen priorities begin to affect and shift unseen spiritual powers. Managerial effort alone is not gonna change a nation. Some of you look a bit gloomy about that, but. Actually to shift heaven to earth takes relational dependence. People actually know God. People who walk with him. People who pray people who fast, people who seek him, who actually waste time on just being in his presence because they understand actually that's where the real breakthrough comes. And there's a shift taking place. I was was totally undone a couple of years ago listening to a lady called Heidi Baker speak. And um, Heidi, for those of you who don't know, is a a missionary apostolic lady in Mozambique, planted 10,000 churches uh, in the last decade and just seen some remarkable things. And she was just telling the story uh, one day of how she was asking God to open blind eyes in Mozambique. And she said, there's just so many people with kind of eye diseases in Mozambique. It's a huge issue, very, very poor nation. And she was just praying, God, please open blind eyes. And so she went to a conference in America and she heard a speaker just tell a story about him praying for someone and their eyes being healed. And so she just thought, I'm having that. I'm not leaving here until I have what this guy's seen. And so she waited in a line at the end of the meeting for this guy to come and pray. He came down the line, laid hands on her. She said she didn't feel anything, but she decided to fall on the floor anyway and just do some carpet time with the Lord. And so she said she just lay there and she just just was praying and just waiting and just saying, Father, I'm not leaving until you give me what you promised. Open blind eyes in Mozambique. Open blind eyes. And she said, I just waited and waited and waited. And she said, I was just then faintly aware of the sound of a hoover going around my head. And I realized that I was probably the only person left in the building. And she'd been lying there for hours, just saying, Father, I'm not leaving until you give me what you've promised. In the end, they carried a body out of the building, put it in the back of a car, drove her to to a hotel room and laid her on a bed and left her and shut the door. And she said she just lay there on her bed till three in the morning, just saying, Father, I'm not leaving until you give me what you promised. You said that you would open blind eyes in Mozambique. And then she said at three o'clock in the morning, the spirit of God so fell upon her that the bed just shook and she fell off the bed onto her bedroom floor. And at that point, she was faintly aware of a knock on her hotel door room. And so she crawls over to the door opens the door and there's two pairs of cowboy boots and as she looks up, there's two, guy, two guys in a cowboy hat. 
two prophetic guys from two different states in America that God had woken up and said, you need to go to this hotel room. There's a lady there staying and you need to deliver to her this message. You have what the father promised. (laughs) And she said, from that day, she set foot in Mozambique, in her village, in the area that you work, they saw 100% success in praying for the blind to receive their sight from that day forward. She told one story of just rushing through a village. She said she was late for a meeting and she was looking at her watch and she passed this blind mummer at the side of her road, kind of 40, 50-year-old kind of blind mummer, just begging with a little bowl in her hand, three teeth in her mouth, just dirt poor. And she thought to herself, I'm late for my meeting. And then she just felt the Holy Spirit say, put your watch behind your back. Remember where the power flows from. And so she said she put a watch behind her back and she said, Father, just help me to love the person in front of me. And she went and sat next to this blind mama, put her arm around her shoulder and she said, what's your name? And this lady said, I don't have a name. No one's ever given me a name. And so Heidi said, can I give you a name today? And so she gave this lady a name and just began to share Jesus with her. And this lady gave her life to Christ right there on the side of the road. And she said, as she held her, her white eyes, which were completely blind, turned brown. Just as she held her. And she said, so often we are living life by this, thinking that this is where the breakthrough is going to come. And she said, actually, this is where the breakthrough comes. When you're connected to the, the source, to the lover of our souls, we say, actually, when I prioritize him, he fights my enemies for me. Some things only come through waiting. Some things only come by seeking, by just loving, by worshipping, by being in the presence of the Lord. It's the only way some spiritual powers will actually get shifted in this nation. That's why what you guys are doing today is actually highly significant. The fact that you take time out of your day to come and pray I tell you what, God is going to work, go to work as we pray here. He's going to defeat our enemies for us. I'm making myself happy. And then just, just the last thing to mention on this. I was in a I was in a meeting about a year ago. I was actually having a sabbatical, so I was having some time off. And I, I walked into another church's meeting just to kind of join them and just to kind of worship incognito at the back of the room. And uh, if you've been in leadership for any length of time at all, it's really difficult to turn your leadership brain off. And so I walked into this room and I was just thinking about everything that was going on in this church meeting. I was thinking about you know, the coffee I'd received, the temperature of the room did I like the songs that were being sung how good was the music like what would I change if I was here like you know tick, 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 tick. Like, I'm just I'm, I'm annoying myself because I'm like just turn your brain off and just engage and so I'm just I'm thinking about all the things that I would improve if I'm there <laughs> and 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 then the guy who's leading that church stepped up to the microphone. And, and to be honest, there were lots of things that I would have changed at that point. The guy who's leading the church stepped up to the microphone. As he spoke into the microphone, the Spirit of God just filled the room. And instantly I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Phil, excellence is a poor substitute for anointing. 
I was like, ah. It was like a wet spiritual kipper around the face. I thought, Lord, you're right. You know, we should do things well. That does actually honour God. I'd far rather we did things excellently than in a shoddy way. That's good. It's good to have good plans. It's good to have good building. It's good to have great presentation. We want to do as much as we can to reach as many people as possible. And excellence helps us with that. But I suggest to you that excellence alone is not enough. Excellence is a poor substitute for anointing. And I suggest to you that excellence is you doing what you can. But anointing is God doing what you can't. Some big issues in this nation. Economics, unemployment, factory closures, lack of industry, gang violence in greater Glasgow, sectarianism, religious hatred, tribalism, alcohol, drug addiction, social isolation, loneliness, hopelessness. There are some big social issues in the neighbourhoods that you and I live in. How is that stuff going to change? Excellence, yes, but excellence with anointing, definitely. And anointing only comes when you live a life of prioritising God dependence. I think we should have a cup of tea. Let's just pray and then we'll go and have a drink. Why don't we stand together? Father, we just thank you for what you're doing across the planet right now. Thank you that these are the days that we live in, that we get to be part of this. And Father, we so want to just put the right overcoat on for the season in which we're living. We want to put on the right mindset. We want to be ready with the right tools. We want to say, like you said, Jesus, I'm here to do what I see the Father doing. I pray even today in this moment that just even these two things, serving from sonship, and living a God-dependent life. Father, just as it were, we take off old clothes that don't fit with what you're doing in the earth right now. We say, Jesus, we choose to partner with you. We choose to partner with you. Lord, I pray even as we just share tea, as we share coffee, as we interact, and as we come together in a moment, Lord, Just seep these truths into our heart. Lord, let the right things percolate to the top. Lord, I pray if there are personal challenges that we need to respond to, Father, would you speak to us? Lord, if there are things that need to shift in our own lives, our own families, our own church cultures, Lord, speak to us. We say we are wide open, Holy Spirit, to all that you're doing. And so God, continue with us as we continue together today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.